Hello everybody and welcome back to another episode of the Weekly Dose of Euphoria podcast. I'm super pumped to share this episode with you all this week. For any new listeners out there, I'm your host Matt Sapala, and I'm super excited to welcome you into such an exciting and eye-opening episode with such an influential human. This week's special guest is Joshua Entes. Now, many of you may already know about Josh and the amazing work he does, but if you don't, Josh is an animal rights activist and dedicates his time and his life to raising awareness and exposing the horrific things that are happening to animals, in particular inside factory farms. Now, this episode does get a little bit graphic at times as Josh paints the picture of what it's like to be inside the walls of these horrific places. So if any young children are listening in the car with you, I would save this podcast for a different time. Josh lives a very minimalistic life, traveling around the world, giving talks, being active in the cities and visiting various slaughterhouses across the globe, spreading this amazing message that animals are sentient beings and equal to us. He's such a strong, passionate dude, doing incredible things for not only the vegan community, but for the whole world. This episode covers a range of different topics, starting with Josh's upbringing and his life prior to activism. He sheds light on his personal plant-based journey, as well as explaining some definitions of words more commonly used when associated with veganism, and how to look past the stigma associated with those words. As I mentioned before, Josh explains to us the process of farm to fork for a piece of bacon, as well as what's happening behind closed doors within the dairy and egg industries. Josh also covers a topic that people commonly use to rebut veganism with, and that's ethically sourced meats and how the process of farm to fork is almost identical between that and factory farming. We covered some amazing content in this episode and we chatted for almost two hours and I have no doubt we could have gone on a lot longer. Josh, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule to record this podcast. So enjoy the show, folks. Josh Entes, welcome to the Weekly Dose of Euphoria podcast, mate. It's awesome to have you on the show. Likewise, Matt. It's really an honor to be here. I'm, I'm super stoked that you reached out to me and wanted to have me on the show. Awesome, man. I absolutely love what you're doing and the message that you're spreading to, to everyone around the world. And, and you should be super proud of what you've achieved so far. Just to paint the picture for you guys, me and Josh are currently chatting over Zoom. He is in Phoenix, Arizona. Is that correct? That is correct. That is my uh, current location just for the night. I love it. And it is 5.30 p.m. over there, 11.30 a.m. here. So we're in a bit of a time difference, but no doubt we're going to cover some awesome content today. So I'm, I'm pumped to get right into it. Josh, to start off with, mate, tell us what life was like for you growing up. Yeah, it's a great question to get things going. I feel like not everyone asked that question. Uh, I grew up in Los Angeles, California, and lived a very Los Angeles lifestyle, I guess you could say. It was I'm always chasing the the money, always trying to do things to impress my friends, materialism, consumerism, life was pretty superficial, kind of acted out growing up, just, I don't know, just if you saw movies of what it's like to live in Los Angeles growing up, that's kind of how I was, but I felt like I was always living inconsistent with what my mind, body, and soul actually wanted me uh, to be living like, so I grew up 
just outside of LA, did the whole elementary school, middle school, high school, a little bit of college in SoCal as well, and uh, moved out really young. So I kind of learned uh, about 15 years old, I moved out and lived with some other friends and family for a while. So I had sort of a different level of maturity growing up, and I was forced to be put into this sort of lifestyle that I just had to kind of go throughout life in a street smart, learn it my way kind of way. And uh, I had some great mentors along the way helping me out. And, you know, I couldn't be where I am today without some of them in my life. But I just was forced to live a different lifestyle. I think that's the best way, best way to put it in a, in a simplistic way. And uh, ended up not really happy with where I was in Southern California and wanted to be closer to some family that was up in Oregon and finished out my college career up in Portland, Oregon at Portland State University, majored in communication and graduated college and had realized that I had just lived the way America wants me to live. You know, go finish all my school, get part-time job throughout school, apply for student loans, go to college, start paying off student debt, and now what? Now I was told I needed to get a job to pay off my student debt, but I wasn't having it at that time. So I just decided um, I needed some self-exploration and I went to do a year abroad in Israel and I taught English in Israel with a buddy. And that's that's sort of when life really started to change for me. I don't know how detailed you want me to get in regards to my story, but that's just quick, long story short, grew up exactly how America wanted me to grow up. Um, you know, ate a lot of animal products. I used to hunt, I used to fish. Um, and then had this sort of, yeah, self exploration journey when I went to Israel. Wow, dude. And just back backtracking a little bit for the Australian listeners, what is middle school, elementary school and, and can you break that down for us a little bit, please? Yeah, totally forgot. Basically it's just the entire school system. So, uh, I think, elementary school might be primary school for you yep, yep and then middle school was grades six to eight six seven and eight yeah and then high school was um nine ten eleven twelve so four years of high school awesome. and then college was my four years at university okay yeah i see we've got a similar structure down here primary school is grade prep which is obviously the the start of school up to grade six and then high school starts from from grade seven to 12 and then university further on there so that's awesome that you cleared that up for us there josh diving back into your your self-exploration in israel what what was the antagonist behind going there why why did you choose israel so there's this thing called birthright in uh i think it's in north america actually i think they might have it around the world where basically if you um, were born and raised traditionally Jewish. I think even if like a grandparent's grandparent is Jewish, um, according to, you know, in Israel, you have a birthright to go back to Israel for free. And so there's this organization called Birthright that gives um, kids or human beings, and I don't want to say kids, but people 18 to I think now they're up to 32 years old, a chance to go to Israel for a 10-day fully guided trip. And as long as you're Jewish. And I know that's pretty um, difficult to kind of hone in on because everyone kind of has their own different faiths, but you phone call, you answer a few questions. I was raised traditionally Jewish. So they were like, all right, you get to go on birthright. And 
in 2012 or 2011, my buddy and I went on this 10 day trip and we just had such a blast and it was really nice to just culturally speaking, historically speaking, just to see Israel and get to have like a crash course 10 days from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv to floating in the Dead Sea. Um, I mean, it was all inclusive, 10 days. All I had to do was pay to get to New York. That's where the flight was from. And we loved it so much that we always, we kept on talking about going back. And we both went to school together in Portland. And when we graduated college, we were like, I don't know if we're ready for this real life. You know, I just put my fingers in quotations, but uh, <laughs> it's hard to imagine we were, when we're on a podcast where yeah, we didn't know yeah. we were ready for that. And so we were just searching for the answer. And then one day I got an email and it said, Hey, you know, something like, not sure what you want to do after college. Well, here's a 10 month volunteer program in Israel. Like, and they obviously sent it out to anyone who had went on this birthright trip to kind of bring more people to Israel long-term. Yeah. And I was just like, dude, I went to class. I messaged my buddy and I was like, here's this, like, this might be our answer. Let's escape the real world for a little and go live a fantasy life teaching English abroad for a year. And my buddy's like, all right, I'm down. And I was like, I'm up for it. And we picked a beachfront city. We got accepted. And then we just had like a, that was what got us to go to Israel. That was the little thing that gave me the push to kind of do something for myself. I wasn't, it was like a gap year after college in America. I don't know what it's like in Australia, but they advocate for taking a gap year before you go to college, like after high school to college. But I did it a little differently. I did my gap year after college. Yeah. Likewise here, they, they do encourage people to take a gap year. Well, most people, depending everyone's on their personal journey. So obviously schooling's a long time. So to break it up like that's awesome. Heading back into Israel, did you develop relationships with people over there talk to us a little bit about your experiences there 100 percent. i think that's why it was so transformative for me because that was really i'd been moving around from place to place sort of living a nomadic lifestyle but with close friends and family within the states and when i left israel it was like first time i'm really in a different country i'm in the middle east which is pretty intense anyway and i'm meeting people that are part of a completely different culture than America. And I started to, I, I told myself going into it, I'm gonna be with 33 Americans. I don't wanna spend time with any of them if I can avoid it. Like I just <laughs> wanna go immerse myself in the culture, spend time with Israelis, befriend the, the, the people that live in Israel and have them take me to do the most local things. I just wanted to, to fully give myself to this experience and to immerse myself in a different culture and see what that did for me. And, you know, right off the bat, I just, I made some really close friends with some of the Israelis and, you know, the Middle East is uh, a place that suffers from constant, you know, war and terror and is sort of looked at in, in some of the other parts of the world as just a dangerous place to be. And I didn't see that at all, to be honest, like being in, yeah, there was some sketchy parts as there are sketchy parts in LA and there's sketchy parts in Melbourne and Definitely. sketchy parts in Sydney, you know, and I just got to really see the Middle East through the eyes of the Israelis there. And they live, I always say, you know, the term YOLO, you only live once. Yeah. Well, I, I used to say that super cliche when I was in college and uh, YOLO and like didn't really know what it meant. And the Israeli culture, like the Israeli people, they truly live YOLO. Like they, they live every single day to the fullest because 
they don't know if there's going to be a war that breaks out there or if there's going to be an act of terror or this or that. Like there's a lot of stuff that's going on in Israel. And when I saw people just living with so much joy and happiness and positivity and excitement for life, I just got addicted to that. I was like, wow, this is not something I'm used to. You know, I'm used to just dwelling in the American culture of, oh, I didn't get the new iPhone. Oh, bummer, blah, blah, blah. Or I didn't do this or I got to do that now. And I got to get this job that pays me really well. And I got to pay back my student loans. And I got caught up in that, in that American sort of standard American lifestyle. Yeah. And then it just threw me for a loop and it blew my mind when I was like, wow. So I just started living like the Israelis. I bought those little like sandals with the two straps that you would never wear in America. And I just started, <laughs> I just started wearing those because that's what everyone was wearing. And I just like didn't shower if I didn't want to shower. And I went to the beach every day. And I just started to live more of this in the moment, be present, kind of don't take life for granted mentality. Awesome. And that's when I just, that's kind of what catapulted me in. I know we'll get into it in a little about the veganism, but I actually found minimalism in Israel. Like minimalism was the first thing that really resonated with me in regards to changing my lifestyle to eliminate the things that don't add value to life and include the things that do and sort of size down a little from a material standpoint and from a mental standpoint and from people in my life as well. Also make sure the people in my life are the ones that I want to have there as my tribe, as the ones lifting me up. And um, just had a beautiful experience. And plus Israel is absolutely gorgeous and the food is amazing. And historically speaking, it's just unbelievable and goes forever. And so it was just, it was a, the first like extremely life-changing moment that I have like that I can pinpoint like yep that's when my life truly changed awesome dude and I love how you brought that up because as soon as you start to surround yourself with people who are going to make you grow or give you a new outlook on life you you suddenly adopt their their philosophy and you feel better off for it so I love that you shared that with us man and just backtracking a little bit back to your childhood, you touched on it briefly before. What sort of foods were you consuming growing up? And when you were a kid, did you ever question where the food on your plate came from? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I never really questioned my food, to be honest. I think I was so conditioned and I believed all the commercials and the Happy Meals to get my toy out of the box, to go get that quick little cinnamon roll from Burger King. I think it's Hunger Jack's where you are. Like, that's just where my mindset was at. So I don't think I ever questioned it uh, until I was older, really. But I was eating literally, if you've heard of it, the standard American diet, the SAD diet. I was eating probably fast food five to six times a week. You know, maybe at least a meal a day came from fast food. About a mile down from my house, we had a shopping center with about six different fast food restaurants, like Pizza Hut, Burger King, Taco Bell, McDonald's, um, and then like two other burger joints or something, all just right by my house. And it was frozen meals from the grocery store because they were inexpensive. And I grew up in a single uh, parent home and it was just sort of, what can we do to save some money here and there? And it was just TV dinners fast food with the occasional home cooked meal, or if I went out to people's homes, um, tons of chicken fingers and fries, tons of burgers. That was just my go-to breakfast, sausage sandwiches, eggs, bacon. I just ate it all and lots of it. 
very animal based diet like it was i would say 70 to 80 percent animal based i never ate vegetables growing up like my grandparents were so shocked when i started to you know live a vegan lifestyle and eat whole food plant-based and, and start to consume his veggies because the only veggie I ate growing up, like potatoes and maybe carrots. Wow. And That's... it was just all animal-based and I just went for whatever tasted best. And I love the point that you raised about people that live in a low socioeconomic area. They're, the fast food is so appealing because it's so cheap and it's just so easy and convenient to go grab that four dollar burger or three dollar burger and then and dinner's done for the night whereas eating a whole foods plant-based diet or whole foods diet in general takes a lot of work and and unless you're really conditioned to to what to do then it can be expensive for you so oh, absolutely and then with the whole dollar menu like go get a burger and fries and a drink for two people and you're at six bucks it's unbelievable it's just so appealing for for that sort of market isn't it awesome going along your journey like what was next when did you find this wonderful thing called veganism yeah so i came back from israel obviously just a new human being and didn't really want to go back i had a big connection there but i was also really motivated to to make some change in my life and kind of had this moment when i got back super big reverse culture shock. Like coming back from Israel, living in the Middle East, adopting this like, you only live once, be in the moment mentality, and then coming back to America was so tough. Uh, I was living on my own for 10 months. I, you know, I got to do whatever I wanted to do. Now it's, I had to rely on other people. So I had this sort of really down moment when I was like, all right, what do I do? Do I continue this lifestyle or do I get a job? And I kind of broke down and said, hey, I'm in student debt, lots of it. Maybe I should get a job and hunker down for a little and figure some stuff out. Um, I had also met a girl in Israel at the time and we were doing long distance when I had come back. She was living in Washington, came back from Israel. I was living in LA. So I was like, you know what? I'll get a job. I'll figure stuff out. And I ended up oh, getting- Just stop a, you there, Josh. Can you paint the yeah. picture from Washington to LA, the distance sort of? How oh, yeah. yeah. So, um, if you look at the West Coast of America, Washington is the top state, which borders Canada, and California is the bottom state. So it's yeah. about a two and a half hour plane ride from Los Angeles to Seattle. So quite difficult. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't just a train ride away. It'd be a yeah. long train ride. So got down, got a job in corporate sales. I was selling merchandise to summer camps uh, in a family business, which was really nice and started to learn the art of sales, which um, fast forward a little is what really helped me into my activism career, but I'm sure we'll get into that. Definitely. So got, got into the sales career, um, did the office life for a year, but during that year, I was just like, I'm not having it. Like, I got to do something else. I got to make a, I got to make a change. And so that's when I sort of contemplated with, um, doing something, either moving up to Washington to try the relationship or having her move down to Los Angeles to try the relationship. And I had ended up making the decision to move up to Washington and I, I wanted to work from home. So I brought that up with my um, company and I was like, hey, I will be so much more productive and make so many more sales if I work from home and I want to try this. So they had let me, thought they'd give it a shot. 
and I moved up to Washington. But in that time of like packing everything and getting everything ready to go to Washington, this is where veganism came into play. This was when I was living with my, my buddy at the time and one of my best friends in the Valley um, in Los Angeles. And we were on this, he had pretty much found minimalism as well. And we were like reducing everything that we had in our life to only the things that added value to us. So we were really doing some sort of mental exploration of being like, what, you know, I had to take inventory of my life and like, what was adding value? And we were starting to realize that there were certain foods that probably weren't adding value to our life in regards to being healthy. And I grew up with some severe stomach issues, had really bad IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, um, had pretty bad acne here and there growing up. So we both were like, all right, how can we exercise more? And how can we feel better based off the foods that we were eating? So we did the whole, let's eliminate gluten diet. You know, let's try eliminating gluten and seeing if that doesn't add value, which we felt a lot better. You know, he was vegetarian for a little and, you know, lived a very euphoric sort of lifestyle, which he told me. And I was like, oh, I want to try that. So I started to eat more veggies. And I was like, all right, let's eliminate alcohol for a little. And we went on this sort of elimination diet fad. We were like, all right, I'm feeling better eliminating this food or that food or this food. And then we were just Googling healthiest diet and veganism came up. And it kept on coming up over and over and over. And so we looked at each other and we were like, you know what? Like, don't really know what veganism is, but you down? And we just like high-fived each other and we're like, all right, like we're vegan now. And then came the research and I was like, all right, this is what it means to be a vegan. And at the time I thought veganism was just a diet choice. And I went vegan for health. I wanted to take better care of my health. And that was sort of that moment sitting on the couch. I don't have some really cool, like life-changing vegan moment, (laughs) but (laughs) we just were sitting on our couch, Googled healthiest diet, veganism came up, high five, we're vegan. And I really like just going back into the process of elimination, how you, you sort of did it sustainably. I, I'm a big, big one for sustainable changes and it doesn't work for everyone, but my personal journey was a sustainable one. I was eliminating foods over time and then all of a sudden it got to a point where I just felt like I didn't need those foods to survive. And similar to you, I, mine was from a health perspective and I'm sure along your, your plant-based journey, you do find other motives it starts with health but then you start to become more aware of the environmental impact the animal agricultural impact and all the other impacts that that your food has on the environment and we're going to dive into that into a little bit but but what was next josh tell us a little bit more yeah and that was it's good that you brought that up because i truly believe that you know everyone's got a different pain point as to why they might go vegan or different wants needs desires kind of related to sales you know everyone might want to buy this product for a different reason for them and i think in the beginning health was my thing health is was the catalyst for me why i wanted to create change but what i quickly realized is that um you know about a year into it year and a half into it that i wasn't actually vegan I was living a plant-based lifestyle because there was so much more to veganism than I thought. And it wasn't because I wanted to support these other industries. It just was because I wasn't educated. I was still innocently ignorant. So during that year and a half journey of being vegan, as so I thought of eating a vegan diet or a plant-based diet, I was still buying products tested on animals. I was still wearing their skin and their fur. I was still supporting industries that 
exploit animals. Like I was going to zoos, I was going to horse races and betting on horses still, all in this process of me thinking I was vegan. Not because, like I said, I wanted to contribute to those, as I think majority of people who get into veganism sustainably or on their own journey just have more education that they need, more information they need to put into their minds. Definitely. So I went on this journey of like, oh, wow, like there's so much more to veganism than I thought. And then about that two-year point, I watched a documentary called Earthlings. Um, are you familiar with Earthlings? I haven't seen it, no, but I've heard a lot of awesome, awesome points about it. So for the listeners at home, can you dive into what Earthlings is about and how it impacted you? Yeah, so Earthlings is a very powerful documentary. It was um, produced and released in 2005, so it's an old one. Uh, and it was narrated by Joaquin Phoenix, super big uh, actor, directed by Sean Munson, really big uh, animal rights advocate as well. And this documentary, it's like, I always say it's the worst horror film out there and it's all reality, like it's all true. And it takes you deep into five industries in which human beings are exploiting animals. So it takes you into the entertainment industry, you know, with zoos, circuses, horse racing. It takes you into the um, vivisection, the, the medical testing for products. It takes you deep into some of these industries like the dairy industry, the meat industry, um, the egg industry. And it basically just lifts the curtain off of, uh, you know, off of all these industries and shows you what's inside. Wow. You know, it kind of puts glass walls over you know, surrounding all of these industries. So you can see everything. And I remember sitting in my apartment in Seattle, watching this video with my hand over my face, like not crying. I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not a big crier, but I was super emotional because I was sitting there like, wow, there is so much more to this lifestyle than I thought. And actually how I've been living is just the diet side of it. It's the plant-based diet. That's why I look back at it saying, yeah, I went plant-based for the health, but veganism isn't a diet choice. Veganism, I all had all this thought in my head. I was like, veganism is an ethical framework. It's an ideology. It's a way of life because there is so much more to the animal exploitation industries than I had really thought. It wasn't just about what I put in my mouth. It's about what I put on my body. It's about the industries I support. It's about where my money goes. My dollar was a vote. And I watched this documentary and I was like, dude, Joshua, you got to get your stuff together, man. There is so much more you could be doing for these animals, for this planet and for helping other people. Like you need to make a big change in your life and you got to tell the world about this. And that's when I really found out about activism. I was like, how can I go? I wanted to scream and, and yell at everyone and be like, you got to go vegan now. You got to watch earthlings. Like if you haven't watched earthlings, it'll change your life. Like, and there's a new movie out that actually is really amazing for all the Australian listeners. It's called dominion. Dominion. And yeah. There was a, a big uh, screening down here in various suburbs and, and it went nuts all over social media and stuff. Oh, wow. I personally haven't seen it, but again, it, it does dive into what happens behind the scenes. Doesn't it? Yeah, it's the, it's the ethical side of it. And it's, it kind of makes that distinction between veganism being an ethical framework and plant-based sort of being a diet. And I was actually at the first screening in Melbourne, which wow. was so unbelievable. It was in a really big theater. I forgot the name. There were like 900 people there and it was just so powerful and so moving. And, but backtrack, I watched Earthlings sitting in my apartment in Seattle. And that's when I said, 
I have to get my butt into gear and I got to go make a difference in this world. And that's sort of where the idea of activism and becoming an activist came into play was I just watched Earthlings and I just aligned my values and beliefs wholeheartedly with my actions. I said, there's a lot more that I need to not be supporting. And I also, I thought that after watching that video, that it should be our moral obligation as human beings to be vegan as well as be active. I think they go hand in hand. We have to help other people make this connection because there's animals' lives at risk here and there's the, the planet's health is at risk. Humanity's health is at risk. And I can't just sit there idly by and be vegan for myself. Like that's chill. That's cool. Saving myself a little bit, saving a little bit of the planet, saving a little bit of animals, but I got to go out there and, and create some mass change. That's, that was what was going through my mind. Definitely, dude. And I love how you touch on that because the, the common stereotype, I don't know what it is over in the US, but in Australia is that vegan or the, the, whenever people hear the word associated with vegan, they think we're, the people are pushy, they push their opinions and they just don't really have any time for anyone else's opinions. But when you're hearing that point of view that you just found this amazing way of life and, and you're trying to spread the word and, and really know how how much you can make a difference just by your voice and impacting that then people might understand that the, the opinions aren't pushy they're just trying to get you to open your eyes to this wonderful way of life would you agree with that oh 100 because i i get why people think we're pushy and we talk about it a lot because we do i am pushy sometimes i do want to talk about it a lot we're killing billions of animals a year we're ruining this planet and we're ruining our health at a massive and very fast rate. So Definitely. of course I want to be pushy. Of course I want people to talk about it and I want to talk about it, but I feel like it goes about, it comes down to the communication style, how you do it. But I think the thing is too, is I felt like I was lied to for 24 years of my life, you know, watching all these videos and commercials and, you know, got milk or milk does a body good and that we needed to eat this food for protein and I needed to do this for that. And like, I felt like I was lied to. So of course I want to help people understand that maybe we should be challenging some of our current beliefs and behaviors. Like it is okay to accept the fact that maybe our beliefs might be limiting, that we can potentially, and I'm going to say that we 100% can create a better world for ourselves, for the planet and for the animals. If we just take a step back and maybe objectively view our current behaviors and our lifestyle and be like, Hey, like, just I, the way I think about it is someone wouldn't be saying I was pushy or preachy if it were dogs. Definitely. Well, I mean, in America and Australia, because some parts they eat dogs, but like in America, if I were standing up and fighting for the Yulin Dog Meat Festival, which is the largest dog meat festival in China, where they do exactly what we do to our farmed animals here, but the dogs, if I was speaking up for that here, people would be on my side. Everyone. They'd be like, oh, thank you for speaking the truth about, you know, saving the dogs. But because we've been conditioned a certain way to look at some animals as food and some animals as companions, that's where the disconnect is. It's just perception is how we've been raised. Definitely. And there's a lot of powerful marketing behind these, these companies that are the trucks driving past have pictures of cows smiling while they're, while they're getting milk with a glass of milk next to it, which is a complete disconnection of reality to what happens in the actual, yeah. in the actual industry. And we're going to dive right into what 
your experiences and what happens in the industry. But like I said before, there's a lot of powerful marketing behind it that influences our opinions on, on the matter. Yeah, hundred percent. Awesome, dude. And I just want to clear a few things up before we dive further into what happens in factory farming and et cetera. Josh, for the listeners at home, can you explain to us what a sentient being is? Absolutely. First and foremost, I just want to say like, it's so amazing that, you know, you're opening up your platform and and giving this message to your audience as well, especially coming from a, a health and fitness standpoint. I just think it's so nice to hear different points of views and and to promote that message so just had to say that but yeah sentient being um sentience i I feel like defining that in the best way would be just capable of having awareness and feeling pain so a sentient being would be any being that is capable of feeling pain that is capable of having some sort of awareness of of presence of being alive Uh, and I never knew what that word was until a couple of years into veganism when I just, you know, looked at people were standing up and saying that, you know, no sentient being deserves what we're doing because they can feel pain just like us. They're aware just like us. You know, you step on a dog's tail, what do they do? They yelp. We can see the fear in our animal's eyes if we get mad at them. Like we know these are sentient feeling beings. So that's the best way I would describe that. Awesome. Hit the nail on the head for us there, Josh. And I love the fact that you, you were referring back to dogs because in the US and Australia, we, we see these as, as superior to other types of animals, but in fact, they're not. And people are so disconnected to the, to the pet they're sitting next to, to what's on their plate. And, and I really want to give people the perspective of what actually does happen from farm to fork and how that piece of food gets onto their plate. So would you be able to dive, take us through that experience and your experiences of what happens of how a piece of bacon gets from a farm to a fork? Absolutely. And I'm really glad you brought up bacon first or pig's flesh because I've, I've been inside of many different killing factories and animal harming factories like dairy industry, um, you know, bacon industry, egg industry, chicken for meat industry. But I think, I had one of my most powerful experiences on my last travels um, inside of a pig slaughterhouse. So the day before I actually, if you want, and and this is why it works out so perfectly. The day before I was in Vienna, Austria, and I was doing some activism there. And we had gotten, uh, one of the organizers had a relationship with one of the um, local pig farms there just a a friendship to where we can come tour the farm and see the operations there. They knew we were vegan. They knew we were activists. It wasn't anything sort of undercover. It was just, Hey, let's come up and check out your local organic sustainable pig farm. So we went there and it was absolutely gorgeous. Like no wonder why people are like, Oh, I buy my animals local and it makes them feel better because this was a beautiful farm and the owner was very nice and the pigs were out there and they had more land than being crammed in a, you know, in a factory farm. And I figured if I was seeing this local organic farm, then it's easy to explain what happens in a factory farm. Like that stuff's awful. And I think most people are against conventional farming, but this local farm, you know, I asked the, the man how long, uh, and this was all being translated. I was, I didn't speak that language, but I asked the man, uh, how long his pigs live. And they were like, well, typically pigs in, you know, bacon, in the bacon industry would probably live anywhere from eight to 12 months. 
And on his farm, they live close to two years. So they get an extra 50%, you know, added on to their, to their life. And I'll stop you there, Josh. Can you just take us through the average lifespan of a pig if it was to roam in the wild, if you, if you know that? Yeah, I think, I, I don't want to 100% quote it. I know cows pretty well. I think pigs are 10 to 15 years. Wow, so they're severely cutting their lifespan, aren't they, still? Oh, like, we kill babies. Like, there's this sheet that you can find online about the, if you just Google, um, lifespan of animals versus, like, you know, their kill rate in factory farms or something. And, you know, we're killing chickens at, like, 36 days. We're killing pigs at six, the slaughterhouse I went to recently in Toronto. They kill 10,000 pigs a day there. No, a week there, and they're babies. They're six months old. Wow. Um, and cows in the meat industry, 18 months, when cows can live anywhere from 15 to 20-something years. So we are 100% cutting a massive chunk out of their life. So – back to this farm. So we got to spend some time with these pigs and see them out there. And, you know, I talked to the man and asked him about how he felt when he sends them to slaughter. Cause he named them as well. Like he to connect with them and he didn't like sending them to slaughter, but he did it because it was his livelihood and, and his job. And um, so that's kind of how they were raised. Um, also in factory farms, I've been in free range factory farms for pigs and there's still hundreds crammed into these open sheds standing on wooden slats so that they're, um, their, all their waste can slip through and go out into the ground and then into the ocean. I've seen them in cages for, for the mother pigs and the babies. Like I've seen all the different ways that pigs are raised in these industries and none of them are good because why? They're going to be sent to slaughter. So then the next step from farm to fork is we'll look at this local organic farm still because I think a lot of people have this vision that local organic farms are okay. So Definitely. this man would uh, say that they would be sent to slaughter and when he needs to make his money, a truck would come and they would corral all the pigs and they would load them up into this truck and they would drive them to the slaughterhouse. So they left this beautiful farm and now they're going to the same slaughterhouse that all the other pigs in the city are going to. And can you and describe so, the conditions on that truck? How many pigs were, were on this truck and, and rough dimensions for us? Just a yeah, picture for the I would say if you, if you take your standard semi truck, like one that you would see driving down the road that's like all white and you can't see in it, I would say they're about the same size as your standard semi truck, your 18 wheeler. And, but there's, um, Depending on the country that you're in, I know in Australia, it's, it's different than in Europe, the different trucks. But basically, the ones I've seen is I've seen single level ones where pigs are put into four different compartments with about 100 pigs on one level. But then I've seen two tiers as well, two rows or two um, levels. And it's the same as the top and the bottom. And I've seen a truck filled with up to a 300 pigs before. That's what one of the drivers said was in there and they are crammed in there. Some of these trucks, cause I'm sure we'll get into, I think I remember you saying you wanted to chat about vigils here. Definitely. Um, but when you get up to these trucks and I've seen them, I've, I've given pigs water. I've taken photos of them. I've touched their nose in these trucks when they've been stopped outside of a slaughterhouse, they can't even move in some of these. And if they can, they're laying down. Some pigs are standing on each other. I was at one in Toronto where pigs were just, um, defecating on the ones below them and throwing up and it was slipping through the, the grates up on the top level onto the ones in the bottom. And like, it's hellish conditions. And imagine trying to stand on like four hooves and you're riding 65, 70 miles per hour on the freeway. I don't know what that is in kilometers, but 
uh, and you're going fast on the freeway and you're trying to balance yourself crammed in with 200, 300 other pigs. Like, it's like for people to relate, imagine being so cramped on your commute to work when you're, when you're cramped on a train, just standing next to yep. someone. Think of how uncomfortable that, that situation is for you and multiply that by, by 10. And that's what a poor pig has to go through. Oh, 100%. And like to make it even, even more vivid, imagine like trains are a little bit more smooth. Imagine being on your local bus and you can't hold on to a pole or one of those little ropes that come down. All you have to hold yourself up is your own like weight and the people next to you, right? And some of these pigs, I know at some of the ones in, in California, the slaughterhouses, they may be traveling for upwards of 48 hours with no food and no water. Wow. So not only are they put in these trucks and are being, I call them death trucks, and are driven to these killing factories, like they're crammed in there, no food, no water, standing in their own filth, hungry, thirsty, and now they're about to be slaughtered. So that's the whole truck side of it. And Terrific. then it's pretty, um, and then the same trip in Austria, I had the opportunity to go into a holding pen of a slaughterhouse, pretty much where they unload the trucks and then the pigs wait to be killed. So I got to spend four hours with um, four other activists in the holding pens in the middle of the night with about 60 pigs. We sang to them, we talked to them, we comforted them. And right on the other side of the wall was the kill floor and you can hear stuff going on and then three of us actually got to go into the kill floor and watch all 60 of them be killed and film it and document it so that we can put out some videos and hopefully share this their story with the world and shine a light on these industries and these were some of the same organic local pigs that came from your joe the farmer down the street who lets his pigs run wild right they're still being stunned because that was the first section, stunned with an electric um, prod that they you know, put on both sides of their head, sends an electric current through them. It's supposed to render them unconscious. Then they're shackled. I'm gonna, just going to go through this really quickly and not be super vivid about it. Um, but then they're shackled, hung upside down. Man takes a knife straight to the throat, blood comes out, and then slides them and pushes them down this conveyor belt. And now they're, all of them are hanging there, bleeding out, and then they're dipped in a hot bath, and this boiling water bath is just supposed to soften the skin and take the fur off. Then they're putting this really like, and in Australia, I know one of the most humane standard practice is actually a gas chamber, a CO2 filled chamber that's, you know, burns the pigs from the inside out. Uh, that's standard practice at a lot of the slaughterhouses. I know um, at Diamond Valley Pork in Melbourne, they use the gas chambers there and it's pretty, um, you know, that's the RSPCA humane way and most, affordable way to kill the animals but in and if we animals, just think about the comparison to one of the most iconic things in history the holocaust it is it is very similar isn't it with with the gas chambers and because it was happening to humans it's a it's a completely different picture yeah 100 percent. i mean well they say uh that the the nazis in germany actually created these camps and these chambers based off of animal agriculture oh. so they got the ideas how to transport human beings and how to kill people and do this based off of how we were already treating our non-human animals. So yeah, these places are horrific. I've been inside of them in most, I think all industries I've been inside of the slaughterhouse and, and been able to see how this goes down. And I will tell you, no animal wants to be there. 
they fight as hard as they can to avoid being in that situation, as would you, as would your dog, as would your cat. Like, we always get that fight or flight. That's just in our nature. Our human animals, the non-human animals, like we have that fight or flight mentality. So we know what to do when we're in a situation. They can hear the screams. They can smell the blood. They can feel the fear. Like, these animals don't want to be there, but because human beings still value taste and make that an important part of their everyday life, we contribute to these industries with our dollar because we just haven't taken a moment. Majority of people haven't taken a moment to look at these animals in in regards to their value at life and their right to be here just as much as our right. And just as much as our dog's right or our cats or our bird, like it's just an awful, awful thing to see and and to understand that I contributed to that so long just so unconsciously like I don't blame anyone until you know you know Einstein I think said it um those who have the privilege to know have the duty to act and I think that's such a beautiful thing because once you know and I it still blows my mind that people who know who have seen my video of being inside of the slaughterhouse and I documented it all and are still not vegan, like, I just don't think we know enough about the human brain to really know how to rewire this conditioning and to change behaviors in such a rapid rate. I think everyone needs to come up with that why conclusion for themselves. But um, farm to fork is, you know, it might look nice, farm, but everything after the farm, you know, if it's local and organic, everything after the farm is the same as these, um, you know, these operations, these massive operations, these piggeries and these um, concentrated animal feedlots, these CAFOs, like, um, or, uh, concentrated animal feeding operations, like where you see these massive places that are just packing in animals. It's just not good. It's horrific, it's, isn't it? It's awful. And just to finish off, just to give people a full perspective after continuing from the farm to fork after the slaughterhouse the the food is then packaged in a nice neat wrapper complete of any connection to what's happened previously and and sold in on supermarket shelves isn't it oh it's they they're very smart you know i tell people all the time like if if you were to go into the grocery store to buy your um you know minced meat to make a hamburger and there was a tv screen showing you live footage of the cow slaughterhouse where that hamburger was produced they'd probably think differently. And most people are like, yeah, I probably wouldn't buy it. Why do we buy it? Because it's out of sight, out of mind. No one wants to think they've been doing something bad or contributing to something that might be unethical and immoral. Like we don't want to think that we're bad people. And I don't truly think that we're bad people. I think we actually have a lot of love in our hearts and a lot of compassion and are capable of extending that to all beings. We're just trying to break through those years of conditioning. And, you know, we have to neatly wrap it. Like, I saw them putting stamps on the pig's body saying, okay, this part is this, this part is bacon. Like we call it bacon for a reason. If we called it the stomach flesh of a pig, which is what bacon is, I'm sure that doesn't sound as appetizing for people. Definitely. But, you know, we use these euphemisms and we call these products what they're not actually. You know, like we call it a hamburger. No, it's cow flesh. We call it bacon. No, it's pig flesh. We call it chicken. No, it's chicken flesh. Like let's start calling it what it is. Like, we call it milk. No, that's the mammary secretions from a cow, from a bovine animal. Like that's filled with pus and whatnot. Like 
we just are so disconnected and we've been so brainwashed, myself included, that I understand why the majority of the people haven't made the connection yet. Definitely. Like this is ingrained in our lifestyle, three, four, sometimes five meals a day. It's just, boom, this is what I eat. This is what I get. And that's it. 100%. And the disconnection is such a big part. And you did touch on before about dairy. I know some people may think that they're making less of an impact, which they definitely are by not eating meat. But take us through what happens behind closed doors in the dairy industry, just for, for the listeners at home. Oh, yeah. Dairy industry is one of those industries, along with the egg industry, that's hidden from us more than the rest. Um, that's why you see a lot of vegetarians and a lot of vegetarians who think that they're making the ethical decision because, oh, cows just produce milk, right? So if cows just produce milk, then I can take their milk. But we got to take a step back. And when I had this realization and, and learned about the dairy industry and actually went onto a dairy farm and got to see inside of the milking parlor and all this and that, like, why do cows produce milk? I had to ask myself, well, they're mammals. We're mammals. Why do we produce milk? You know, we produce milk for our children. Human milk is the perfect concoction for a human baby. Like everything that's in there is meant to be the sole food for an infant child, right? A human being. And cows do the same thing. They produce milk for their babies. And everything that's in that milk, the fats, the hormones, the proteins, the lipids, like that's all meant to take a, you know, 80 pound bovine animal, a baby cow to like 400 pounds, 500 pounds. It's meant to grow them rapidly. And we're feeding that to ourselves. And then you got to kind of look a little step back here is how do cows produce milk? Well, first they have to be pregnant. They have to give birth. Like we don't, we just don't give milk. We have to be pregnant as human beings. We have to be pregnant. We have to have a baby and then we produce milk for that baby. Same thing goes in the dairy industry. So now when I thought about it, I said, well, if cows produce milk for their babies and we're demanding their milk, then are we taking away their baby's milk? And, you know, upon further investigation and looking into this, which a lot of people do, 100%. But to go a step even further back, I don't know why I'm going backwards now, but how do these cows become pregnant? The demand is so high, these animals aren't just running around on the farm and, you know, doing it naturally. Another one of those two quotations with my hands. They are being forcefully impregnated. They're artificially inseminated. There's a, a, like a metal utensil that they, you know, end up taking bull semen and putting it in this, like on this rod and sticking a hand all the way into the anus of these cows, these female cows, and then inserting this rod into them and then artificially inseminating them. And they actually call these machines rape racks in the industry. Yeah. Like it's, it's tough to see what we do to these animals. And there's a missing word here. It's just consent. Like we just are not asking these animals for permission. And, and yes, we can't get verbal confirmation from these cows, but like that's even more of an inclination that we shouldn't be doing these to these cows. And so we impregnate these cows artificially. They give birth. Now what happens? Their babies can't drink the milk because if their babies are drinking the milk, human beings aren't getting the milk. So we take away the babies from their mother. They call it separation. And you can Google this or YouTube it, just like dairy farm, calf separation. They do this sometimes, most standard practices, a day to three days. After birth, they will take the child away. Like 
They'll do it within the same hour, right as the baby's born, I've seen it. They have ripped the calf away, and you see these mothers, very maternal, trying to chase after their young. It's said that these cows will just bellow and, and make all this noise for up to a week to two weeks until they have to get over the fact that they just lost their child. Wow. Because if, if the babies are there, the babies are going to take the milk. That's what it's for. But we take the babies so that we can harvest the milk. And one thing that we don't see, which is a side effect of it, is if the baby's a male, that baby is not going to produce milk. So they're a waste product to that industry. So some of them will be killed for the veal industry. And some of them will be raised for, you know, 14 to 18 months to be killed for beef. And that's it. And then the females will be raised to be just like their mother, artificially inseminated, have their baby taken from them, hooked up to these awful machines where things just suck into their udders, which are overly producing milk because we've selectively bred them. And then they just live on repeat for about five years, um, five to six years until they're considered spent in the industry, which is um, what they say when they can't produce any more milk. And then they're killed and shipped off to the same slaughterhouse and then are minced up for your hamburger. Wow, that is so horrific. And I'm actually getting goosebumps while listening to this, even though I, I knew all this practice. Yeah. But the picture that you've painted is so real. And, and I'm so grateful that you've been able to make that connection for all of us, Josh. I really yeah. appreciate that, mate. And it's, and it's tough because one, dairy has been said, oh, it builds strong bones. It gives you your calcium. It's got good protein. But we just, they're doing that to hide the horrific nature of this industry. Like, this is something that you don't think about. I grew up thinking like, oh, Betsy the cow on a farm just gives us milk. You ask some kids like where milk comes from, they just go, cows give it to us. You know, like cows just produce milk for us. No, they don't produce milk for us the same way we don't produce milk for any other species. You know, we're the only other species on the face of this planet that willingly drinks another species milk. Definitely. Well, Josh. And it is completely strange. And I know some people still are very disconnected from it. And then they rebut this by saying it's a circle of life. Can you, can you explain to the listeners why this isn't the right mentality? Because we're in 2019 now. The circle of life. Yeah, I hear that quite a bit with doing some, some outreach on the streets and, you know, tackling some objections online. And I think, well, like, what is the circle of life? And what is the food chain? Well, one, it's a construct that human beings created. Like, there's no lion that thinks to themselves, mm, I'm going to eat this gazelle because of the circle of life. Even though circle of life is from the Lion King movie, that song. But I just, that just popped into my head, you know, a little humor there. Um, you know, no animal, like, other than human beings thinks about that, like, as far as we know. Like, it's the circle of life, I believe, the food chain was just created so that human beings can try to morally justify eating certain animals. We are not at the top of the food chain, and this is not the circle of life. It's like the circle of murder. It's the circle of torture. It's the circle of enslavement. It's the circle of captivity. Like, circle of life isn't breeding billions of animals into existence. Like, none of these farmed animals that we, that we eat or that we use for their products, like, are natural anymore. These cows aren't natural. I went to this pig sanctuary in Seattle once and the owner told me this just wild statistic that back in the late 1800s, the Yorkshire pig, your standard pig that's in factory farms, the really pink ones with the tall pointy ears, 
the massive ones. A standard Yorkshire pig back in the late 1800s, don't quote me on this, but was like 300 pounds, something like that. Now a standard Yorkshire pig in this animal agriculture industry could be upwards of 900 pounds, some as, as big as 1,100 pounds. I don't know what that is um, in kilos, but uh, that's a lot. And that is a massive change. That's because we selectively bred these animals. So this isn't a natural circle of life anymore. And the circle of life, traditional circle of life, doesn't include factory farms and these highly mechanized industries to where human beings aren't even touching it. It's just machines that are coming in and killing these animals and changing these animals out and doing and transporting their stuff. This isn't the circle of life. That's a, you know, a BS kind of objection to morally justify continuing to contribute to what we do. It's we don't want to accept the fact that we just might be wrong, that it might not be a thing of the circle of life anymore. Like if we want to do circle of life, let's protect this planet. Let's protect the beings on this planet. Let's have this ebb and flow and a true symbiotic relationship with nature, not this kind of excuse of, oh, animals give us their meat. No, that's not the case. Like, awesome, I don't think it's a circle of life. I think it's 100% a circle of torture and unnecessary death. That's very, very wonderfully put. Uh, thank you for sharing that, Josh. And now we've addressed all the horrible things that are, that are going on behind closed doors. What are some solutions or alternatives that we can do to eating meat and dairy? The simple solution is just, and it's simple, but it's hard. Uh, and I'll explain why. I think the simple solution out there is just to live vegan. Just to start aligning your actions with your beliefs and your values that I truly think is within everyone. Because if we have love for our companion animals, if we have love for someone in our life, we have the capacity to extend love to all beings. I think it's there. It's just some of that love and compassion is more suppressed because of this conditioning. So the simple solution is to look deep within your heart and ask yourself a few questions. One, if given the choice, would an animal choose life or death? And two, are animals here for us or with us? And the simple answers to both of these are, they're gonna choose life and they're here with us. They should be here with us, but sadly we choose death for them and we choose to have them be here for us. We've turned these animals into commodities for us. And look within your heart, ask yourself, would I want this done to my own dog or to my cat? Would I want this done to myself or to another human being? Would I wanna put any being through this torture just so that I could please my palate when there are so many other options out there in regards to pleasing your palate? Like we eat the same four or five animals, yet there is endless amount of plant species out there that we can be eaten and mix them together to eat some pretty delicious foods. So I would say look within your heart, find that compassion that I know is there, and just really work on how you can extend that to all beings. Veganism is simple, it's an ethical framework, but everyone's gotta come up with that why. Everyone's gotta make that connection. I believe everyone has that switch in their brain that when it's flipped up, that's vegan. I can't flip that switch for you. No one can flip that switch for you. I can hold your hand and walk you down the path to flip the switch and give you motivation and inspiration and education. But ultimately, everyone has to choose this for themselves. And that's how we have sustainable, lasting you know, lifestyles of a vegan lifestyle. So I think first and foremost, dig deep. If anything resonated with you and what I talked about today, if you had this 
vivid picture painted in your mind about being inside of this factory farm or this slaughterhouse or any killing factory, if you had that picture in your mind, that should be simple enough to be vegan. And then the help is out there. And you know, the next step is just to educate yourself. Like I said, two years of my vegan journey, I was still supporting some industries. Not because I wanted to, just because I was uneducated. So educate yourself. There are so many resources out there, documentaries, books, websites, YouTubes, podcasts, so much knowledge out there that will just expand your consciousness. Because I think it's literally just about coming to a new state of consciousness and understanding that there's a little bit more to life than we actually know. That there's just a little bit more love that we can be giving, a little bit more compassion, a little bit more kindness, a little bit more justice and respect and freedom that we could be giving to not only ourselves and our closest friends and our family and the rest of humanity, but to our non-human animals as well and our planet. I think all of these are linked. So simple solution is just to educate yourself and dig deep into your heart and ask yourself those two questions and just start living vegan. Awesome. And I know you touched on before, if anyone out there did resonate by from something that Josh has said in this podcast, I know he's more than happy to help you on your journey, as am I. If you have any questions about transition or just questions about anything, don't hesitate to shoot them across to both of us. I know that it's not capable for everyone to just flick the switch and go overnight, but if we can get people eating more plants in the process, then that's a step forward in the right direction. Would you agree? So, you know, I agree and I disagree, and I'll tell you why. I'm a realist as well, and I understand that if, if we just look at habit change, you know, sustainable habit change and behavior change comes from um, slowly showing up and taking action on a daily basis until we can reprogram our brain to have a different habit, which turns into a different behavior. I'm well aware of that. But for myself, as an animal liberation activist and someone who continually focuses on promoting a consistent message, I can't say that reducing or meatless Monday, or eating more plants is enough. I can understand people on this journey 100%, and I truly know that not everyone can switch overnight. That 14-year-old kid who lives at home, and their parent buys all their groceries, and is having a really hard time conveying the message, and their parents maybe won't let them, that's probably extremely difficult for someone to just snap their finger and be vegan. Um, Or that my 87-year-old grandfather, who has 87 years of conditioning, extremely hard for him to snap his fingers uh, his fingers and go vegan. He's made some big changes. He's incorporated a lot more plants, which I always congratulate people for, but I never say it's enough because I think in any social justice movement, we have to have a consistent message that for, I'll use this for example, if we want to not contribute to these industries, veganism is the only way because reducing, even if you eat meat only once a month, you're still contributing to the pain suffering, torture, and death of an animal. I'm well aware that it's an amazing thing and and people are getting there. And if it's on their sustainable journey, I just can't be one to promote that. I can only say, how can I help you get there quicker? Awesome. I I love that. I love that point that you raised there, Josh. Yeah, because I'm a realist. I understand it's not happening overnight. Look at my journey. I do a little show of hands in one of my talks about how many people went vegan overnight. And it's usually about 50% of the people. So everyone who didn't raise their hand, I kind of call them out and I say, hey, you had your own journey towards veganism, right? You got to put yourself in, in the, the carnist shoes. But then I say, for everyone who still raised their hand with going vegan overnight, you still had a vegan journey. We all had a journey leading up to veganism, unless you were just 
like my little nephew now has never had an, a bit of animal products in his system. You know, he's been born into this world as a vegan, as his mom being vegan. So like he's the special case, right? Yeah. So everyone else had their own vegan journey. And I do always congratulate people say, that's amazing that you're eating vegan four nights a week. You know, how can I help you get to seven nights or how can I help you get to just living vegan? I love that approach and I love how you've dedicated, dedicated your life to helping people along their journey and, and achieve the success or achieve the main goal sooner. I really do love that. And that obviously goes into your, your life as an activist and, and just for the listeners at home, can you explain what an activist is and and what your role? Yeah, I think the easiest definition for an activist, I mean, you can look planetary rights, black rights, women rights, animal rights. An activist is someone who actively engages in creating change. And what I mean by actively engage, I mean, it takes a step in the direction of not just sitting idly by anymore and living a certain way, but creating the change, being the change you wish to see in the world instead of just, um, and, and creating that change. So going out there and speaking the truth and helping motivate, encourage, and inspire others to do the same, like to follow suit. Because like I said in the beginning, it's one thing to just be vegan. Like if all of us just went vegan and didn't become active and didn't actively engage in speaking the truth and shining a light on these industries and being there to help motivate and support people, we would not be where we're at today with the number of vegans in this world or with any social justice movement. You know, you look at civil rights movement, you look at Martin Luther King, like Martin Luther King was an activist. He not only lived in alignment with his values and beliefs, he actively engaged in creating that change. He went out there, he stood up for what he believed in, he spoke the truth, he made a powerful speech or speeches, and he was that support system and and encouraged people to do it. So I think Activism is any way that you can get out there to evoke change. Awesome. Hit the nail on the head there, Josh. And, and what sort of activities do you, do you get involved in as an activist? Can you talk us through, through those things? Yeah, well, I think um, there's endless amounts of ways that we can get active. But specifically for me, I, I started my activism journey on social media as, with like a food blog on Instagram. And I went by the name This Little Vegan at the time. And um, just posted really good pictures, some whole food, plant-based um, meals, and talked about veganism in a, in a positive light and took the health side of it. That was a form of activism, so online activism. Then I got into leafleting at different festivals where we could go out there and we pass out different brochures and flyers. Uh, then I found Direct Action Everywhere, DXC, which is um, a form of activism where we go disrupt and we challenge the system from a legal standpoint as well where we do a couple different disruptions in grocery stores and shine a light on these industries, bringing awareness to the public. Then I found the save movement, which is where we bear witness. We attend vigils where we go to these animal harming and killing factories and we bear witness to the animal suffering where we, we stop the trucks. We give the animals water. We give them love and comfort. Some of the only love and comfort they'll ever experience. And we take photos and videos to share their story with the world. Then I found Anonymous for the Voiceless, which is uh, an organization which I'm actually doing my current tour right now with. We do, uh, we specialize in street activism. Um, you may have seen any, any of the listeners that started in Melbourne, Australia back in 2016. We set up in a cube formation, a very artistic demonstration with people wearing the white guy fox masks, standing in a cube of people holding computer screens or TVs, 
that are showing footage of animal agriculture or signs that say truth. And then we have a team of outreachers engaging in public conversation. And, but there's so many other forms of activism, marches, protests, then you have more direct action where you're um, doing lock-ins, going into these facilities and locking down and bringing media attention, liberations, liberating animals and bringing them out of this darkness and into the light. Um, I can go on for days, but there's so many ways that we can get active in uh, the animal rights and liberation movement. Fantastic, Josh. And I know a lot of people would be wondering, how, how do you make money to survive? Like, obviously, you don't earn a wage by by being an activist, do you? Can you talk us through that, that process there? Yeah, I think that's one of the, my most asked questions for the last 18 months is, how do I afford to do this lifestyle? And I think first and foremost, you minimalism helped me not attach um, success and uh, put a lot of emphasis on making money. Like I kind of separated myself from this idea that I needed to have a lot of money to be successful and to be happy. So that was a first start. And I think I went into this knowing that, hey, if you want to go change the world and you want to make a difference and you want to put your boots on the ground, it's going to be a lot harder to make some money doing it because not many people are doing it right now. It's happening. The activist movement is growing in every social justice movement, but like activists are always the smallest percentage of the movement. Like it's just, that's just how it is. So what I did is I, I did it pretty smart. I, I read a bunch of books on personal finance and, and budgeting and, and self-help and, and just trying to really create this, you know, and forged this really good relationship with money. And I told myself two, like two years before I actually set out on my first tour where I became a full-time activist, I was like, all right, I'm going to start paying myself first. It's this old ancient kind of mantra to live by with your money. Pay yourself 10% first. Anytime you get a paycheck, anytime someone gives you a hundred dollars, um, birthday cash, or someone gives you this, take 10% of that and put it in your own separate fund for you before anything else. If you got to adjust the other areas of your life, you got to do that, but pay yourself first. So I created this little folder called my passion project. And at the time I didn't know what it was, but I just started paying myself first into that passion project and building up money. And then a year out when I had the idea of what I had called the compassion tour, I was like, boom, now I have an intention set. I know what I want to do. I created this budget. I, I expected that a year's worth of travel around the world, living how I wanted to live was going to be roughly, we'll just say $20,000. So I was like, all right, I got to save this money so that I don't have to rely on making an income because it's going to be very difficult, which it was, and it still is. So I saved more than that and budgeted so well to the where I only spent like a fourth of what I had budgeted because I had hosts taking care of me. I think I was hosted like 290 or 300 days out of the year on that first tour. Awesome. I had people, cook, you know, people cooking me food and, you know, I would cook food and buy food for other people. It was this ebb and flow, but I budgeted so well and doors just started to open. I also have a Patreon, which is like a crowdfunding site for content creators. So people can actually pledge a monthly amount to um, support content creators and to support activists like myself, people who are doing this, this journey. And I have different rewards for different tiers. You know, you pledge $10 a month, you get access to my photos archive to where you can use my photos as your own for animal rights stuff and like something like that. So my Patreon brought in a consistent like $400 a month throughout last year. That's food. 
$12 a month, if you budget right, is my food. And, and I was only paying for food and travel and some accommodations. So, and my Patreon is, you know, going up, it's going down and it's, you know, you can't rely on $400 a month. I've had, um, I reached out to a few companies. I tried to be smart in the beginning and said, Hey, I'm looking for some sponsors. Would anyone be willing to sponsor me? I reached out to five companies. One said yes. And I got a thousand dollars. Wow. Now, I could have reached out to a hundred and got 10, but I didn't, you know, it's, and I'm going to do that for the next time. And there's so many ways that we can get creative to make money. Cause I think in this movement, if you're driven by money, then you're not in it for the right reasons. That's an as awesome point. Right? You know, as with anything, like we need to separate ourselves from money being the end goal. Yes. We need to pay our bills. We need to support ourselves and our family, but I'm a single dude with just a little bit of student debt left, not really many bills, no home. And I have two suitcases with all my stuff. So I didn't really have many outgoing expenditures. So I could focus on living a little bit more minimally with, in regards to my finances. And I think you just got to go into it understanding that if you do good and you have the intention of, of creating massive change and you selflessly give your time, then doors will just open. But it's a lot of work. I built my Instagram up. I made connections. I had restaurants here and there give me free meals and support me and got one-off donations here and there. Or like when I was in Sydney, the organizer, I give all my talks for free. Every single talk I give, I give two a week in every city that I go to. And like one of the Sydney organizers was a legend and created this donation thing and ended up raising 400 bucks for me to give my talk. And that was, that's all my food for the month. That's massive. Wow. So I think you just take what you get and you work on creating new ways to earn money and put it out to the universe and, and know that things will work out. And worst case scenario, I go back home and I get a job. That's not going to happen. But worst case scenario, if you just accept that that's what it is, trust the process and enjoy the journey of, of getting out there and creating change. It's a tough life, but it's so worth it. Dude, your, your story is, is so inspirational. And I know people, people are getting goosebumps like I am listening to, <laughs> to the podcast. Uh, is there any way that my listeners can contribute to, to what you're doing and, and help raise awareness? Where can they contact you to, to find some things? Yeah, absolutely. So the easiest way to contact me would probably be either Instagram message or email. And my website is simple. It's just joshuaentis.com. I set up um, coaching calls as well. If anyone really wants to get into the nitty gritty and have some longer talks, I offer that up there. I'm always responding back to every single direct message on Instagram. It might take me a little bit more time, but I put that into my daily practice. It's something that I've always wanted to do is just to be there for people. Um, so yeah, people can connect with me there. If people wanted to support me, I always say first and foremost, just follow me online, just follow my journey because the more people I have on my side, the more supported I feel. And that helps a lot when I'm kind of tirelessly moving from city to city. And when I go on a live stream, the more people I have in there and the more smiling faces I see and positive messages, the better I feel. Um, but financially speaking, Patreon is a great way to kind of be engaged and feel like you're supporting not only myself, but the journey and the mission. So that's just patreon.com forward slash Joshua Entis. All that information is on my website under the support page as well. So I, I detail that in there as well. So I just think, uh, yeah, connect with me on Instagram, connect with me on, on my website, send me an email. I like to be as open as, as possible and come to 
my workshops. If I'm ever in your city, I'll be coming back to Australia and doing a little bit more of um, Western Australia. I'll be coming back to Melbourne, coming back to Sydney. So if I'm ever there, come out. I'm always down to get some coffee and some food and just meet some like-minded people and um, to get out there. And oh, another great way to support me and to support animals is to be vegan. So I would say that first and foremost too. Fantastic. I love that plug. And I'll have all those in the show notes for you guys. And I know me and Josh, I'll definitely be catching up with you next time you're in Melbourne, mate, if you're down for a, uh, for a coffee. Absolutely. Awesome, dude. Uh, just you guys a particle cinnamon. Yeah, I was actually there yesterday, that one of my favourite places in the whole of Melbourne. So a little cafe, a little plug for the cafe in Avondale Heights, Particle Cinnamon. If you haven't been down there, it is unbelievable. Say hello to Zach and Kat. Those guys are spreading an amazing message and, and doing awesome things with the platform they've created. Oh, they are some of the coolest people I've ever met in my life. That is so cool. So Josh, you're, you're a full-time activist, traveling the world, spreading this amazing message, message. Now, this may not be realistic for the majority of the population. So what are some ways that the everyday person be can become more active in their life? Great question. I think first and foremost, the simplest thing we can do is take to social media. Get your thoughts out, put it on paper, put it online and take a photo offline. Take one of my photos. Like I always tell people, just use my photos if you want. I don't care if you're spreading the vegan message, do it. Take the photos, overcome that fear of what other people are going to think about you because that doesn't matter because you're speaking up for the innocent beings of this planet and write something on social media and post it. If you have 10 people see it or 10,000, it doesn't matter. You never know who's going to be watching. You never know who's going to be listening. You know, same with podcasts, same with live videos. Like just make content and put it out there. It's the power of social media. It's the power of a hashtag. It's the power of people sharing content. Secondly, I would then take to social media again, go to Facebook and look up the three main organizations that are out there with big Facebook platforms. Anonymous for the Voiceless. They do the Cube of Truth. It's a very easy and accessible way to get active. You can stand in the cube and not say a single thing all day, but still make a huge impact for the animals and be part of something bigger. Find Anonymous for the Voiceless. We're in over a thousand cities around the world now, uh, which is massive. So go to anonymousforthevoices.com, click find a location near you, a map will come up and you'll be able to find that location near you and they're, they're all over. The next one, the save movement. This is if you're needing a little bit more conviction building. Maybe if you're teetering between going vegan and you need something to kick your butt into gear, head out to a vigil, stand out in front of a slaughterhouse, make a connection with one of these animals in the truck. And I just hear stories of people saying, that was it. That's what did it for me. You know, my, my vegan friend brought me to a vigil. I connected with a pig, a chicken, a cow, and I had to go vegan in that moment. So get out there, bear witness, go hold a sign um, to show the public that these industries exist. And then if you're looking for something a little bit more loud, and wanting to get some, some feelings and emotions out, find Direct Action Everywhere. They do more protests, marches, disruptions. All three of those organizations have really accessible websites that'll help you find a chapter near you and to help you get in contact with an organizer. But social media is key. And just live it. You know, Let your actions speak louder than your words. Live the lifestyle. Eat good exercise well, make veganism look fun, make veganism look tasty, make veganism look accessible, and just live the life that you want others to be living. And that's a great form of activism as well. Cook for your friends, take them to Particle Cinnamon, take them to restaurants, 
and just like get out there and show them just how amazing veganism is from a health standpoint, from an environmental standpoint, and then most importantly, from an ethical standpoint. Fantastic, dude. And, and that is a definite, definitely an achievable thing to be able to, to contribute via social media is another great form of activism. Josh, yeah. heading into places that you love to eat out, where are your favorite that you love to eat out and, and what are they called? Oh, gosh. So not that we were chatting about them a second ago, but Particle Cinnamon <laughs> has to be up there as one of the best restaurants I've ever been into in my life. Um, but I've been to, I'm pretty spoiled with the vegan food. I've been to over 200 fully vegan restaurants in the last two years. Right. So I've had a lot. So Particle Cinnamon is definitely in the top three. Um, there, I don't know if they still have it, but they're Jack jackfruit uh, burger was literally like one of the tastiest meals I've ever had. I had um, that yesterday, to be honest. Yeah, it's um, with that charcoal aioli or whatever it is, like such an unbelievable dish. And that's still, I'm so hungry right now. About <laughs> that. Like past dinner time, I'm like, oh gosh, why can't I just have particle cinnamon? But I also judge, I go a little bit more in depth with that. I, I look at the environment, the aesthetics, the owners, and Particle Cinnamon nails all of it, you know, just everything from aesthetics to the owners. And they also low-key had menu item named after me, which was the coolest thing ever. It was the Joshua into salad. I thought it was so funny, but also so rad. (laughs) I just love Particle Cinnamon. But then also in Australia as well, I'll just give my top three. And in Australia as well, but over in Sydney is Shift Eatery. Have you ever been to Shift? I haven't been to Shift, but I've heard some awesome things about it. And it's been going nuts on social media at the moment. So uh, They're crushing the game on social media. Just unbelievable human beings there. And they're activists as well. Same with um, Particle Cinnamon. And they're, um, they call it, what it Ruben's brother. No, Ruben's vegan brother, Steve, is the name of their Ruben sandwich. <laughs> And I just think it's I just think it's the best thing ever. It's Ruben's vegan brother Steve. I think I might be quoting that wrong, but I literally went to Shift Eatery five days in a row and had the Ruben five days in a row. <laughs> like I think that might be the best bite of food I may have ever had. Wow! From a restaurant because I like my home cooked meals, but that was just great. Um, and then I might have to throw up props to this one restaurant. I forgot the name of it, but in Tallinn, Estonia. This little gem of a place in Tallinn, Estonia, which is like a two-hour boat ride from Helsinki, Finland. And it was this like kind of high dining or high-class dining. And it was just so cheap because it was Tallinn, Estonia. I mean, for 88 euros, we just jammed out on all the food. And so that was great. So those would be two in Australia – so Australia's winning the vegan uh, vegan restaurant game for me. That's awesome to hear that the the vegan movement is gaining traction down here in my own city. And Josh, you mentioned before that you you love to cook your own meals. What what do you eat in a day? Uh, the staples. So if anyone listening follows me, they kind of know uh, what my breakfast is. It's my chocolate banana oatmeal. I yeah. am notorious for making this for every one of my hosts around the world. So hundreds of people have eaten this dish around the world across 22 countries. And it's just an amazing concoction of oats with boiled banana, some soy milk, cacao powder, pecans or walnuts, depending on what I got, raisins, blueberries, raspberries, and peanut butter. It is 
like a 700 calorie jam packed breakfast and I eat it ev- almost every single day. Wow. That sounds it is, amazing. It's epic. Like if you wanted to get the recipe, there's a really embarrassing video on YouTube. It's like one of my first YouTube videos. Um, if you just go to my page and go all the way down to the first video, it's this chocolate banana oatmeal, super embarrassing video of me, but the recipe is there. Uh, or just send me a message and I'll give it to you. It's amazing. And then I would say my other staple, I like to be consistent with what I eat. I just like, like it's easy for me to shop. I love the taste. It's healthy. I love the way my body feels. So I like to eat as close to whole foods, plant-based as I can. My other staple is a boiled Japanese sweet potato. I like to boil it instead of bake it. I uh, just feel a lot healthier when I do that. And then I will steam up broccoli, red peppers, carrots, um, tofu, and chickpeas, and mix that all in with a little bit of salt, pepper, garlic powder, and some cayenne, and that's it. Dude, and it's just, they, they're so simple, but they are making my mouth water. <laughs> oh my gosh. It is like the, the simplest, cheapest dish to make, and it just piles your plate because I always put way too much broccoli and way too much tofu, and it's just like a meal for six, and I can just <laughs> sit there, and your body knows what to do with it. Like, it's just the nutrients are there. I feel like it's touching upon everything and I just love it. And I make that all the time. Awesome, man. Josh, with all the negativity and horrific things that you're, you're witnessing, what keeps you going through all that? It's a really good question. Cause I, I focus a lot of my time and energy now on um, positive mental attitude and self care. And I think the thing that keeps me going is almost an unconscious thing. Like I'm constantly trying to put something down on paper of like why I continue fighting. Obviously it's the animals, but I think it's just selfless, like giving, giving to something greater than myself and being the better version of myself. Cause like growing up, I just wasn't the best I could be. And I think that just keeps me going. But actually now that I'm speaking it out loud, I've said this kind of in some journals and to some people like low key, some of my friends, I think what keeps me going the most is knowing that I'm helping other people, servants, active service. And yes, I know I'm helping the animals in the long run, but I think knowing the fact that I can be of service to other people, that I can help be a positive light in someone's dark day, or that I can help them transition to veganism and experience a life of like abundance and joy and, and good health, or that I can help someone become active and break out of that comfort zone and find that confidence that they had within that was always there, but they never thought they had, and then go out to their first action and message me later feeling super empowered and like their life has changed. So truly, this is what keeps me going. Now that I you know, am speaking it out loud, is just knowing that I'm able to give myself to other people and to be of service to other people. Amazing, dude. And you are doing awesome things with the platform you're creating. You should be super proud of, of what you've done and what you're no, going really to continue to do. I definitely am. And I think like to go along with that, what keeps me in, in the fight though, because it is difficult. Traveling for 18 months alone is difficult. Then you add activism. Then you add giving two talks or more a week. Then you add just consuming all this pain, suffering, and, and trauma, and experiencing all this stuff. I think really digging deep, and which is what I'm focusing a lot on now, I'm actually creating a space online for this, digging deep to forge this positive mental attitude, like to 
understand that we have a lot more capacity to take control of our headspace than we actually think. Um, you know, that there's all these external things that happen in our life. And at the end of the day, we truly have the power to label it as negative or to react a certain way or to become depressed and then let that depression take over. Like, obviously I'm not talking here about, um, you know, clinical depression and stuff like that. I'm just talking about the day-to-day depression, the lows from this movement that forging this positive mental attitude, taking extremely detailed personal inventory of what my mind, body, and soul needs and constantly checking with myself and working on personal development and discovery. That's what keeps me just afloat. And hopefully when I master this stuff, um, and I hopefully I'm continually getting better and better throughout my life. But when I get to a point when I feel like I'm a professional on this stuff, then I'll be able to have even more energy and more um, of a positive mental attitude in this low of the low sort of experiencing all this stuff. Awesome, dude. And it's amazing that you mentioned that because I, whenever I'm going through a difficult period, I always refer back to a quote that I, I forget where I've seen it, but it was, you're always in control of your own happiness. So you have yes. the power to switch, switch your mood and switch your thought process into, into a more positive frame of mind. Always. And, and like, don't get me wrong. Cause I give this talk every week. Like I understand that, you know, having a tough time on activism versus a family member passing away, they're going to evoke different emotions and feelings. And I'm not saying to not have these, that's just normal human being stuff, but it's how we choose to react to these things, how we choose to label them within our headspace. And do we figure the solution? Do we, do we mourn? Do we grieve? And then do we come out stronger or do we sit there and let that negativity consume us? So uh, I do believe we always have the power to control our own happiness some things might create a, a bigger roadblock than others, but I truly believe that we can get past all these roadblocks with just taking control of that headspace. Fantastic, dude. Hit the nail on the head. Wrapping up to the end of the show now, Josh, I just want to ask you a few, few questions about what are your goals for the future in the vegan movement, personal movement, and, and how can we become an assistant an assistance to that? Yeah. So, Best assistant is someone who's vegan. Always got to give that plug. Just uh, <laughs> love it. Imagine everyone. No, uh, I think my big goals for this movement, you know, obviously I got the big goal of getting to us to a point in this world where human beings don't use animals anymore. And, you know, that we can treat animals. I truly believe that all, all beings on this planet have the same three rights, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, I'm not saying cows should vote or cows should be able to drive. I'm just saying all beings on this planet should be able to have the right to life, living a life full of freedom and justice and respect and in pursuit of whatever it is that makes them happy. So that's my big end goal that I'm always waking up day in and day out to fight for. But I think some more short term and some longer term goals for me is I want to see myself move to an area in this movement where I'm providing motivation and inspiration from a self-care and personal development point of view. I give a talk on sustainable activism, which has turned out to be my most requested talk that I give around the world. And it's something that no one is really talking about in this movement, taking a break, uh, you know, avoiding burnout, uh, which I experienced last year and developing this positive mental attitude. So my, my short-term goal is I've actually created a space on Facebook that's launching next week called Recharge. It's um, the first ever vegan group where we don't talk about veganism. And it's a, it's a space 
for people to exactly what the name is, to recharge, to separate themselves from veganism and activism, to focus on personal development, growth, and discovery, uh, being the best version of themselves. So I'm facilitating this group and we're having, uh, I believe, 75 people in this group to start where everyone is going to hold themselves accountable and hold each other accountable for growing together. You're actually not allowed to talk about veganism or activism in this group. It's one of the rules. You know, I frame it to a positive. I don't like negative statements, but, um, you know, we keep veganism and activism talk out of the group is, I think, how I framed it. And that's so that we have this safe space to completely recharge and to tap into other areas of our life and hopefully to create this balance so that we can sustain our activism long term. So we can continually be in this fight. So that's short term goals. So that's what's happening, launching this week uh, or next week. And then in, at the end of 2019, I'm going to be taking the recharge group and turning that into my, one of my biggest visions and, and aspirations is to be leading the recharge retreats. So I want to have four retreats in different places in the world for about 30 people. I have nothing else into this. This is just an idea right now, a plan that I'm trying to manifest and work towards and then have these in-person retreats where people come just like the Facebook group. It's all for personal development, growth, and discovery being the best version of you. But this time I have, I'm kind of the MC of the weekend, or I think I want it to be six to, you know, six to eight days. There's going to be yoga classes, mindfulness classes, meditation, um, exercise, alone time, trust building, confidence building, basically just a self-care and personal growth retreat that is meant to take you out of your vegan and activist life and just build that you know, positive mental attitude and that strength and that resiliency to come out as an even stronger vegan activist. So that's big goals. Um, and I'm going to write a book one day. Awesome, dude. I love how you're, you're putting this out into the universe and, and trying to manifest it. And I love how you're taking a holistic view to, to everything. I'm, I love taking a holistic view, whether I'm training my clients into more sustainable changes or whether I'm just living my day-to-day -day life, trying to address all issues that can make us better people. And, and you're doing amazing things, dude. You should be so, so proud. Well, I appreciate it. I really am. And, um, you know, it's nice to always get that feedback and that, those affirmations that it's kind of, I'm, I'm taking steps in the right direction because I've had my lows, you know, I, I'm, I need to practice what I preach a little bit more. And, and that's what I'm currently going through right now, which is, focusing on that self-care routine for my, for me and for building and forging that, that positive mental attitude and um, getting to that place where, where I can effectively help others do it. And so it's a work in progress, but it's all going to happen. It all does always does. Awesome, Josh. And just the lucky last question for this podcast. It, it is one that is a, is a one that makes you dig deep into thought. What is your main message? Why, why do you do this every day? Great question. Why do I do this every day? Well, first and foremost, I do this because it makes me feel good. It makes me feel like I'm actually making a difference. For the first time in my life, when I started to do full-time activism, I felt like I had a purpose. I truly, you know, we all, we, we search through our lives and like, what's my purpose? Why am I here? And you know, we're constantly searching and it's constantly changing, but I went through my life for 26 years without a direct purpose and nothing that I was like aspiring to be like no hopes, no dreams, no aspirations other than your standard ones of making money, you know? 
And so I wake up every morning and I feel this greater sense of purpose, this giving to others, this sense of service. And that's what truly keeps me going. But then the other thing too is I love knowing that I might be able to help someone experience the amount of love that I've experienced since becoming a vegan activist, uh, the amount of trust and respect that I've, um, and authenticity that I've found in myself, for myself and for others, beautiful people have hearts of freaking gold. And like, I just want people to be able to experience everything that I've experienced and which is in turn helping this, helping this world. Like first and foremost, the animals, like it's so simple. We just do not need to be using animals. And, and like, I want people to just experience that and, and create a deeper sense of <clears throat> love and compassion towards these non-human animals to see a, a chicken as a beautiful being, to see a mouse as a beautiful being, to see a bee as a beautiful being. Like this is next level stuff. This is new stream of consciousness. And I, you know, I'm getting into this whole consciousness thing and the spirituality stuff. And I think if we were all just vibrating on a different energy level, like what we could accomplish in this world would be legendary. And I want people to experience this because it's not only going to save innocent beings and not put these animals in these facilities and in a place of confinement and torture and, and suffering, but it's just going to make this planet healthier and save this planet. And if people truly practice this, you got to leave this planet healthier than, you know, when we got here, well, that's not happening. So we got to step our game up. So it's just going to impact everything, everything, this whole universe. Um, so I think it's the greater picture is the universe. It's just making this universe a better place and hopefully having a, a healthy place where animals aren't being exploited and being used and and people are tapping into their heart and and opening up their heart and expanding their consciousness and creating more abundance and positivity in their life i know this is a deep question to ask i could probably go on for for a while about it i just yeah hope hope you pulled something out of that I pulled out an enormous amount of points there, Josh. Coming up to two hours of chatting, and I feel like we could have chatted for a whole lot more, mate. But I really just want to thank you for devoting your time into making it more aware to the general public about the things that are happening inside or behind closed doors and how we can make a greater impact into, into a better, healthier world. And Josh, you're doing amazing things with the platform you created and you've worked so hard for, and I'm just grateful for, for your time and to be able to, to meet you, mate. No, thank you so much. I, I really am so happy that I um, took the time to respond to this email. <laughs> it's not every day I get to be, um, responsive to all my emails and I just appreciate this opportunity and, and, you know, you sharing with your, your listeners and your followers, um, my message. And I think if we can always be working to support each other and, and showing different points of views in this movement, it's going to give everyone a nice, well-rounded sort of knowledge about what's going on and from the health side, from the environmental side, from the, from the ethical side. And that's just going to help more people, you know, check off those boxes in their mind to, to come to that conclusion for themselves. So I, you know, truly appreciate you and having this opportunity. And thank you everyone for listening too. If you made it this far, you're awesome legends. Thank you for listening. Hopefully we can connect online or in person and, you know, very interested to hear about your story and, and how everything's going on for you. Awesome guys. And I'll have Josh's contact details in the show notes for anyone that wants to get in contact with him. Thanks so much, Josh. Have a good day, my man. Uh, you too. Hopefully we'll talk soon. Definitely. Bye. All right. Wow, what an episode that was. 
Josh, you're such an inspirational person spreading an important message. So keep up the great work, my man. I would love to get some feedback from you guys about the episode or previous episodes that I have released. So just shoot me a DM on my Instagram page. And also, guys, if you have any guests that you think have an inspiring story or are doing incredible things in the community, much like Josh, shoot me a message and I'll try and arrange a podcast with them. I'll see you guys next week on the podcast.